All right. Well, I hope you're all doing well and uh, surviving the uh, holiday season as best as one can be expected to do. Um, you know, the other day there's you know discussion and talk about well, we need to we need to go to the grocery store because we need to go get some stuff. You know, for the girls are home and we need to go get uh, some lunch stuff and. You know, come to find out, you know, our only available day to kind of all go there and get some stuff together was Thursday. And I'm sitting there going, oh, man alive, that's going to be nuts. Can you imagine going to Winco on a Thursday or a Walmart? Yeah, that's going to be crazy. So, but uh, we'll we'll see what happens. So hopefully you're all doing well. But uh, we're going to be in the book of James again tonight, uh, continuing on with our study. We're just talking about it right before we... Uh, started here, uh, talking about a couple of things with some other books and, uh, some, um, some key things to think about, but, uh, probably not going to get to all of those. We'll, we'll definitely get to some of them in, in, in short order, but, uh, um, we'll, we're going to try to get there as quickly as we can. But, uh, again, once you get into chapter two of the book of James, as I was saying, you start getting into the core of, uh, some pretty heavy doctrine. And, um, there's a lot of people that, uh, will, will, will want to go and say, uh, if you will, kind of, uh, ignore some of that heavier doctrine and try to, if you will, uh, rationalize it in practical manner or an applicational manner, uh, which we can take some of that and absolutely we should. But again, there is a doctrinal component that cannot be ignored. Uh, otherwise we're running amok in this, in this book if we do that. But, uh, we, we left off, uh, right around, uh, the first part of chapter two. Uh, I'm going to make mention of something that, uh, we looked, talked about in the last part of chapter one, though, just to, again, get us to understand a couple of things. But, uh, we're going to take a look here at this in just a moment, but let's open with a word of prayer and we will get started for this evening. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we are thankful to be here and thankful for an opportunity to study your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would just guide us and direct us, that uh, our thoughts would be led by your Holy Spirit and guided by your word, that uh, we would take all of these things that are given to us here, that we would use those uh, for the correct applications, whether it's doctrinal or things that we need in a practical sense. And Lord, I just pray that we would uh, just have a desire this evening to learn from you, learn from uh, what you give us throughout your scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that um, you just give me the words to speak and uh, be with my mind, that all of it would be pleasing and honoring unto you. And these things we do ask and pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in chapter one, there was the uh, the verse that... Uh, uh, James went into in verse 27 where he was talking about pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And and I want to make mention of that because there is a, par- a couple of parallel verses. Uh, one of them uh, that I want us to go over to is in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2. <clears throat> In 1 John chapter 2 and in verse uh, 15, uh, John is writing this down, says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. 
If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So here we, we, we clearly see something that is matching what James is saying. Now you gotta imagine this, uh, James and John, that's these, that's the brothers. Those are the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. These are the two guys. They're writing things that are, if you will, congruent with one another. They're talking the same language, if you will. And James mentions this, and as we get into the first part of chapter 2, there's a lot of discussion uh, in the book of James about, uh, if you will, partiality. How people view things, if you will, in a physical sense, a worldly sense. And this is one of the biggest issues that James is trying to get these Jewish believers to really grab a hold of, to really get a, get, get a handle on. Because what we often see is not often the case. Uh, we are easily deceived. Uh, there are things that, that, that go on today. Uh, that, uh, you know, everybody's talking about all of this stuff with these, uh, quote unquote deep fakes and all these videos and things like that. You can almost make somebody say anything that they, that, that somebody else wants them to say and it would look legitimate. And it takes a, a, a really detailed, if you will, digital forensic scientist to get in there and analyze and just, you know, break it down and find out was this altered in any way, shape or form. You know, the earlier ones, they were, they were, you, you know, you knew something was just off. Something was just a little bit off, but now they're just getting better and better and better and better at creating these things. And it's becoming a lot more scary. But, but I say all of that to, 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 to say this, uh, the world is very deceptive. And we saw over there where, where John was talking about the, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. What we see. And, and one of the things that, that is being seen here in the first part of the James chapter 2 is the way that people appear. The way that people are appearing. Because he says very clearly in James chapter 2 verse 1, My brethren, have not faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. Meaning that what we're exercising in our faith and what he's talking about here with these works that they're supposed to be doing, they are not going to be done with the partiality. Meaning that their favoritism is towards something that would benefit them. And he says in verse 2, For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come also, and also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou in a, here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and have become judges of evil thoughts? And James just cuts right to the chase and says, Here's the issue. It's the evilness of the, uh, the their thought process. It's harmful. It's dangerous. It's something to be very wary of. Because what we find is, we find with that partiality, it is a hypocrisy, as he goes on a little bit further. They're wanting, if you will, to make friends with that, that, that person that is in the goodly arraignment, 
raiment, excuse me, uh, then and not the one that's in the vile raiment, because again, they're wanting to go towards somebody that is going to benefit them. Having a rich friend would be a good thing, especially if you wind up in need. So there's this benefit that they think is is going to help them. And it's a worldly mindset. It is not the mindset of God. It's not the mindset of Christ. He humbled himself and he came. He didn't have a home. He didn't have a place to sleep. He was sleeping in other people's houses or out in the, you know, as we saw one sermon, out in the, 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 the Mount of Olives over there in the garden over there. That was where he resorted to. That's where we would abide. That's where he was, if you will, in the common vernacular, hang out. But here we find that as he's talking about all of this, he's saying, look, here's, here's the problem. You're going against what God is teaching. Go over to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. We took a look at this a little bit. But Leviticus chapter 19 and in verse 15, <clears throat> the Bible says, You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness thou shalt judge thy neighbor. Now, this becomes very critical because he starts talking about the royal law here coming up in the next part of this. And the royal law is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, here he's specifically saying you shouldn't be partial regardless of their economic or financial position. This was a commandment for the nation of Israel for them to understand. Because, again, you don't want to have somebody that is always favoring the poor because sometimes the poor are just as guilty as the rich. And the rich are just as guilty as the poor, if you will. Why? Because for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They need to understand that concept. But 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 that's the way that that it is today. There there are pastors that I know of and pastors that I've also heard of that uh, they 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 have a congregation and then all of a sudden. There is somebody in the church that gets upset over something, whatever it may be. And they get so upset over it that they, they come to the pastor and say, well, I'm going to, I'm going, we're, we're going to leave the church. We're going to go somewhere else. And some of those pastors that I know and some of them that I've heard of will view that family or that person in the way that the IRS views them. As a giving unit. By the way, that's how you're classified according to the IRS. You're not human beings, you're a giving unit. <laughs> In case you ever wanted to know the details behind that. But, 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 but here, here's the, the understanding behind this. They'll look at them and if the person is say, not well to do and they don't provide a lot of money in the offering, then it's probably not you know, really important to, if you will, try to talk to them. But if it's somebody that is of a higher class and they put in a significant amount every single week and every single month, 
and it would seriously put a pinch on the budget, well, you want to make sure that you, whatever, you do whatever is necessary to retain that person. Well, I'll tell you this, that's not living by faith. That's not living by faith at all. That's living by somebody else's pocketbook. That's why, if you will, trying to live according to, you know, the, the world's methods and the world's mentality. And that's not how it works. That's not how it works. The congregants should all be important, regardless of who they are, regardless of their financial standing, regardless of, uh, of what's going on in their life. And even in, if you will, and regardless of sins. Because let's just put it this way. Somebody may look at that person and go, oh, good grief. Can you believe they did that? That's such a horrible thing. I mean, I mean, can you understand the fact that they did this, 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 and this? You know, somebody at that point in time, you just want to turn around and say to them, do you realize that what you just did is just as bad as what they just did? You sit in there bad-mouthing them? You sit in there gossiping and tail-bearing? Let's take a look at what the scripture says about that. God does not like it. And especially because it is a pride-driven sin. Because all you're trying to do is make somebody else look bad and you make yourself look good. That's all gossiping, tail-bearing is all about. Tear somebody down so that in the eyes of whoever you're talking to, you kind of look better than that person. Even if it's by, like, say, a fraction of an inch, you still, you know, you'll look better. No. It's not about that. What is it about is is what we're doing for the Lord. Is it pleasing unto him? Should be one of the main things that we think about. And, And so if somebody does this over here and somebody does that over there, and we start going through the process of grading sins, we ought to be careful with that. You know, God makes it pretty clear here. You know, sin is sin. And he even talks about that, if you will, in chapter 2, where he talks about if you're guilty, if you, uh, uh, offended one point, you're guilty of it all. As far as coming to the commandments and the law of God. You mess up in just one area. You're guilty of it all. But, but God makes it clear. He's saying, look, this is not the way that I operate. I don't operate in the partiality. Now, let's, let's get real down to the meat of what James is saying. James is saying the biased partiality that they were exhibiting or that anybody that exhibits this is sin. And he's saying it is just as bad as if you committed murder if you're going to go out that way. Because we're going to see the hypocrisy that's behind it. And really, honestly, if you were to take a look at this and compare some of the stuff that's going on, you would find and you would see the Pharisees. And you find their hypocritical type uh, uh, attitude towards things. Because, I mean, that's what Jesus Christ called them. He said, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees. And then he uses with the exclamation mark, hypocrites. Why? Because they were, if you were, if you will, lording over other individuals using the the laws of God as a bludgeoning tool. 
to beat people into submission so that they would have dominance over them. Now, that's never godly. That's never godly. Take a look at another couple of passages in regards to this, just so we can get the mindset of what God is. It's good to get his mindset. It's good to think the way he thinks. So let's take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Here we have some repetition of the law being given again, going through it with this new generation that's coming into the land in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and in verse 17. He says, and specifically talking about judges and how to judge between individuals in verse 16, he says, ye shall not respect persons in judgment. So if you're going to judge something, you need to not respect people. You're like, well, I, you know, we should respect people. Well, you shouldn't respect them in the judgment. You shouldn't uh, side with your friend just because they're your friend, even though your friend may be as guilty as sin. That's a wrong thing to do. He says, you shall not respect persons in judgment, but you shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of the face of man for the judgment is God's and the cause is too, excuse me, and the cause that is too hard for you, bring it to me and I will hear it. This is, this is how he, he ordained these judges and how they were supposed to operate. Remember over there, Moses' father-in-law shows up and says, this is way too much for one man. Moses, you may be, you may be a man of God. You may be able to handle, handle some stuff, but this is way too much. You got a million plus complaining Israelites out here. Way too much for anybody to handle. This is just too much. So, you know, Moses takes that advice and he goes and he sets judges over and princes over all of these individuals, you know, kind of, if you will, a hierarchy of courts, which is where we get a lot of our court from and how that works. And they would go through that whole process of going from one judge to another judge. And if there was something that was too hard, they would escalate it up, just like we have a Supreme Court. It would go up to the Supreme Court and go from there and so on and so forth. But here he makes it very clear. He's saying that, the, the, you know, the judgment is the Lord's. We need to make sure that we're exercising that judgment the way he does. The way he does. Let's take a look at another passage. Let's go over to chapter 16, Deuteronomy. Chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16. And um, let's take a look here at... Verse 18 says, judges and officers shalt thou make in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. Now look at how he says just judgment, meaning that a judge is supposed to exercise justice. Now that's a concept that we still reiterate today, but sometimes we find judges that don't do that. Hence you enter into this new thing that everybody's talking about, these quote-unquote Activist judges. Uh, again, that's just another buzzword that everybody's got out there for something. Uh, whether you're talking about religious right or things of that nature, it's just all these little buzzwords that everybody's got. But one of the things that he's talking about is they're supposed to exercise justice in this judgment. I mean, it's supposed to be the right way to do it. And he says in verse 19, thou shalt not rest judgment. 
Thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift, for a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words <coughs> of the righteous. So, so here, here he is making it very clear. He's saying, if you're going to do judgment, you need to do it the way that he would do it, which is just. And the way you do it is that it's not done by bribery and by, if you will, respect of persons. Looking at somebody and saying, oh man, they make a ton of money. Uh, if I rule in their favor, they might give me some. They might give me a gift. That person comes and says, I want you to rule in my favor. If you do that, I'll give you 500 uh, head of cattle or something like that. That makes the judge uh, rich. And he's saying, look, we need to be absent of that mindset. We need to be absent of that mindset and, and, if you will, avoid that temptation. So as he talks about here, you know, and all these things, and he starts off in chapter 1 over there in the book of James, where he says, you know, you need to count it all joy. Well, the way you count it all joy is when the things that are done are done righteously. Instead of falling into those temptations. Making this conscious decision to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And yes, I'm going to do this according to the will of God. Take a look at another uh, um, uh, another verse, another passage. Just go over to the book of Proverbs. Let's take a look at a couple in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 24, let's start there. Proverbs 24, verse 23. Proverbs 24, 23. <clears throat> he says, these things also belong to the wise. It is not good to have a respect of persons in judgment. Somebody that's going to exercise that wisdom that God gives them, the one, the wisdom that he talks about uh, a little bit further into chapter three in the book of James that we, that comes from above, that kind of wisdom doesn't pervert justice that way. But what does he say here very clearly? He says it's not good to have respect of persons in judgment. That's gonna, that, that's gonna cause a problem. I mean, you go back over there and you take a look at, at, at Samuel's sons and what they were doing. They were receiving all of those bribes and things, if you will, from the people to hopefully get them right with God. Now that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my entire life. How is it, you know, that you, you, you sin and you, then you bribe the priest to make it right with them or make it right with God for them? That doesn't make any sense. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 28. Take a look at another passage, Proverbs chapter 28, and take a look at verse 31. Proverbs chapter 28, uh, there is no verse 31. What do I have down here? Hold on a second here. Can't even read my own handwriting. Uh, verse uh, 21. Let's start there. That sounds good. To have respect of persons is not good. For a piece of bread, that man will transgress. And you know what that is about? That's about an individual that will do anything to get what they want. They will do anything to get what they want. There are things that people absolutely, you know, desperately want and in this case, he's talking about a need that an individual 
that wants a piece of bread, they're going to do whatever it takes, including sin. Including sin. So when we take a look at this and we're talking about not having a respect of persons, he's saying, look, don't be going after what you think you need. The Bible is very, very, very detailed when he, he goes about cautioning who we hang around, who we call friends, how we, if you will, work in those relationships. If it's the relationship is just for the sole benefit of us, that's not a godly relationship. That's not the way that God created relationships. And you go back over there in 1 Corinthians and God makes it clear. He's saying that, you know, uh, that it's, it's about, you know, when it comes to a marital relationship, it's about the other person. The other person isn't, uh, isn't, uh, you know, being honored in that, then there's a problem in that relationship. There's a major issue. That's not the way that relationships are supposed to work according to the Lord. But here he's talking about in this situation that this person that is being, you know, that's respecting another person in that judgment, it, it's, it's basically like a person that is so desperate for a piece of bread, he'll do anything to get it up to including sin. And that is what respecting of persons is about, is a sinful nature, a sinful pattern. Take a look at a couple other passages. This time let's go to the New Testament, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10. Let's start in Acts chapter 10. We'll start in Acts chapter 10 and then take a look at uh, Romans here in just a moment. But Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> Acts chapter 10, if you remember, is one of the most confusing things to Peter that has ever existed. Poor Peter. In, ch- in this chapter, he's he, he's all over the board. Because you look at him and you find him, he's over at Simon the Tanner's house. Next thing you know, he's up on the rooftop. He sees a vision three times about eating unclean things. And he's like, not so, Lord. Not so. And he's like, I haven't eaten anything common or unclean. And then God says, don't call common or unclean what I've cleansed. That's a big thing. I mean, right there in Acts, in Acts chapter 10, free reign to eat bacon, if you will. And he's sitting there and, 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 and Peter's just short circuiting about that. And no sooner is that all done and the Lord says, Hey, I'm going to send somebody over to you. There's a knock on the door and these men are saying, Hey, you know, we're here to get you. And take you back to this Roman officer, Cornelius, because he wants to know more about God. Now, again, Peter's short-circuiting because, again, that's not Peter's area of responsibility. He was preaching to Jewish individuals. Peter's ministry was to Jews, not to Gentiles. That's Paul's ministry. But this is a little bit before Paul, okay? So Peter, Peter again, short-circuiting, 
goes over to Cornelius' house and like, okay, well, the Lord told me to go. Grab some of his Jewish buddies and they go traipsing on over there. They go over there, open the door, expecting just, you know, Cornelius and find he's brought his friends and family. They're having a church service. And Peter's the pastor. <laughs> and that's not working for Peter because that's like, I'm not supposed to even be talking to you people. What is this about? What's going on here? And he starts in, and if you read some of the way he starts talking about how he's, how he's, how, how he, he, he talks to them and how he, he, you know, meets them and begins going through all of these things. In verse 28, he says, you know how it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. It's unlawful. He said, but God sent me. He makes it clear, but God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So praise the Lord for Peter. He, he got the message. He got the message. So he begins to go and he preaches. The next thing you know is the Holy Ghost falls upon these believers because as, as they're sitting there, they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're saved. And the Holy Ghost falls on them. That doesn't happen, by the way. Throughout the book of Acts, you find that the Holy Ghost is given upon laying of hands after salvation. Something completely, totally different than what happens today and what happened right here in Acts chapter 10. So there's poor Peter again, confused. And then all of a sudden, he begins to understand what they're talking about because of tongues. And it's like, wait a second. What is going on here? And, and you get through this whole thing and, 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 and he gets to this point of where he's going to go baptize him. And, uh, um, but, but, but here he is preaching to Cornelius. I wanted to highlight this in verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said of a truth, I perceive that God has no respect of persons. The plan from the very beginning was that all should be saved. That all should come to repentance. That's been God's will from the beginning. The nation of Israel was chosen to be, if you will, uh, part of God's mouthpiece and uh, to be used to, if you will, bring the knowledge of God to the Gentiles. That was their mission. That was their purpose. And they crashed and burned on that one. I dare say today, a lot of churches are crashing and burning on that one too. But what we find here is he says, of a truth, I perceive that God is not, is no respecter of persons. Now that's Peter saying this. Take a look at what Paul says in Romans chapter two. Romans chapter two. Romans chapter two. And, um, Uh, verse 11, there we go. Right there it says, for there is no respect of persons with God. Men are biased, God is not. You know, in this day and age, there's a lot of conversations about what people call implicit bias and so on and so forth and 
and uh, they go through all of these tests to see whether you're 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 biased or even if you're bigoted or racist and so on and so forth and things of that nature. Well, let's just face it, that's what man is. Man's good about doing that. What happens? You get a group of people together and what? They all kind of congregate together. You don't believe me? Go to a high school, any high school. I don't care which one. Walk in there during lunchtime or during their break period or whatever it is, and what do you see off on one corner? You see all the football players over there. See all the nerds over there. See all the goths hanging out by the locker rooms. You see the introverts hiding under the tables. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you see commonality, right? And, of course, each group is talking bad about the other group and vice versa. Why is that? Because that's how man thinks. Man thinks on the things that are outward, not on what's inward. Man struggles and tries to do that. We've got little motivational sayings about it. We've got motivational speakers about it. We've got motivational books about it. We've got motivational stickers and, if you will, water bottles about it, right? How we're not supposed to be that way. But I guarantee you, even the person that is, uh, quote-unquote, the the most unbiased person has a bias. They have a bias. Aren't you glad God doesn't have a bias? God does not care about which sin is setting you to hell other than the one of you rejecting Jesus Christ. Okay? Okay? The Bible says we've all sinned. The Bible says over in this book, James, where we're seeing that if you've been at one point, you're guilty of it all. Well, I don't care if you told one white lie, you're as bad as a politician. You're as bad as Jeffrey Dahmer, Adolf Hitler. Well, I'm not that bad. Well, in the eyes of God, you are. So you know what's important? What's important is that God isn't biased. So when he looks down on you and he says, that soul needs salvation, that soul's crying out to me, that soul's calling out on my name for salvation, I'm going to save them. Aren't you glad God doesn't check your credit score before he saves you? Those three little numbers, right? Why is it that that just drives everything? There it is. That's bias. And people look at it and they'll say, well, that shows responsibility. I totally understand that. I totally get that. And so a lot of that is true. But I will tell you this. Sometimes people are a victim of circumstances that they cannot help. They cannot be helped. Aren't you glad God doesn't sit there and, and, and ask what your IQ is before you trusted him? There you are. You're calling out and saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, please save my soul. I don't want to go to hell. I want to be with you. I want eternal life. And he says, good, good. By the way, 
when was the last time uh, we checked your uh, IQ level? Because there's only a certain amount of, you know, IQ that we let into heaven. Well, I'm exempt then. <laughs> I'm out. Aren't you glad he, that he, he doesn't ask those type of questions? Aren't you glad he doesn't sit there and go back? Well, I want to check your ethnic roots first. My brother, he uh, did one of those DNA tests uh, that kind of shows what part of the world we come from. And, you know, my family, we're, look, we're mongrels. I mean, we're, 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 we're mixed from all over the place. And uh, I'm looking on there, and, and, and there was a, I would say, I mean, it wasn't like a really small percentage, but it was a heavier percentage than, than what I was expecting of North African. My North African includes that whole northern part over there, which is like, you know, Morocco, Libya, Algeria, um, obviously not saying I'm in order and stuff like that, Egypt into the Middle East and so on and so forth. And I'm sitting there going, huh, that's interesting. Aren't you glad God doesn't sit there and go, oh, you know what? I see a little bit of Russian in you. I don't think so. God loves Russians too, okay? He loves Russians, he loves Jews, he loves them all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's one of the most beautiful verses in scripture. Well, one of the, if not the most well-known verse. That God would care about his creation. It's been the plan from the beginning. He's not a respecter of persons. And you people will go back and say, well, you know, he did tell the disciples not to go to the Gentiles. Right, because that was, he was dealing with a specific ministry at that time. Well, he did say that they weren't supposed to, it was unlawful, right? Because they were supposed to be doing certain things. Well, you know, he didn't want them fraternizing. Yes, because he didn't want that influence. Whenever God did say, hey, not these people, there was a reason. There was a reason. And to God, it was a good reason. And it will always be a good reason. We may not think it was a good reason, but then we're not God, are we? We can't make that judgment. So we go back over here to James chapter 2, and he says, basically, in this part, in verse 5, he says, hearken, my beloved brethren. Now, again, he's reminding, he's saying, look, I'm a Jew too. He says, I'm speaking to you guys. You guys are my brethren. He says, hearken, my beloved brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? He's talking about Jews. You realize the Jews were poor individuals? They're like, well, Abraham and Isaac, you know, they were rich. And Jacob, they were rich. Yeah, but fast forward a few hundred years to where they are in Egypt. They're slaves. They're a slave race, if you will, to them, to the Egyptians. They despise them. Moses, he gets an opportunity to go into Pharaoh's house and get all the riches of Pharaoh's house. But what does he say over there in the book of Hebrews? He chose not to. He said, I'm not going to. 
And here we find that as he's reminding them, he's saying, look, you know, guys, we were promised a kingdom. And they were promised a kingdom. And God's going to hold true to that promise. And that kingdom is during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. A thousand years. Israel is top of the nations. Meaning if you don't respect the nation of Israel at the UN, there won't be a UN, by the way, <laughs> at the UN, then, then, then your country's in big trouble. But again, the nation of Israel is going to be doing that which is right. And here he's talking about that's what they're supposed to be doing on all these other people. And, and yes, they were rich in faith because you go back over there and what do you find as the father of faith? Abraham. And you go through the, the whole, the, the, the whole lot over there in, in Hebrews chapter 11. Did you notice something with maybe one exception or so? They're all Jews. They're all Hebrews. They're all Israelites. But what are they doing? They're exercising faith. And in compared to where they are right now, as James is talking to them, they're poor. Why? They don't have a country anymore. It's a relegated province of Palestine under Roman law. That's all it is. And the Romans just looked at that whole area as a problem. They, they, they despised it. But here we find he, he reminds them, he, he reminds them and says, look, you know, God chose the poor. Aren't you glad he didn't choose a richer nation? Why would we be pious in our judgment? And if you remember, God told the nation of Israel, I didn't pick you because you were the biggest. I didn't pick you because you guys were the best. I didn't pick you because you guys were the richest. I didn't pick you because of that. Why is that? Because you know what? God likes to pick things that just make people go crazy. Whittling down an army from 32,000 to 300 with Gideon against a group of uh, against an army that it was he described as grasshoppers and their numbers were large god takes care of it he likes using those small things he likes using those things that confound if you will the wise of this world Because sometimes, you know what? What God does isn't logical to us. It is not logical to take 300 men and go up against an army that is at least 100 times larger than yours. That doesn't make any sense. From a tactical perspective, no. It doesn't make any sense. Unless you've got an atom bomb hidden in your back pocket, still even then, not wise to use it. But you see what, what, what he's talking about is he's saying, look, 
God didn't exercise partiality when He chose us. You just took a man that loved God and was willing to believe Him and step out on faith. Step out on faith. Now, as you go down here a little bit further, he says this, he says, but you've despised the poor. Despised the poor. And, 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 and that's a sad thing to have them understand is that they despise the poor. God doesn't like it when we despise things. Esau despised his birthright and God hated him for it. So when we start despising in such a way, the problem is, is we start looking at, if you will, individuals in the incorrect manner. We look at them. They despise because they couldn't give him anything in return. They couldn't even give him reputation. Oh, hey, I know the bum on the, the corner of the street. Big deal. Here he says, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Now look, these individuals that he's talking about are unregenerate here. These rich men, these are, these are people that are not considered the brethren, if you will. Because look at what they're doing. What are they doing? He says, they draw you before the judgment seats. Why? Because they're litigious. Yeah, they will try to get blood out of a stone. Because back then, if you couldn't pay, well, guess what? Your body ain't your own. You're somebody else now. Endangered servitude. It wasn't until not too long ago that they actually stopped doing that by the way. It's kind of interesting when you look at U.S. law about indentured servitude. This is just kind of a side note. Did you ever notice that there's no real laws that are actually, quote-unquote, have done away with it? There are in England and in Scotland and other countries, but not here in the United States. It's just kind of faded away into the background because, if you will, they did away with the debtor's prisons because they figured... What purpose does it serve? If they don't have any money, I'm not going to get any. And they'd rather just leave leave the people to live in their destitute. But here, he makes it pretty clear. He says, the rich men are oppressing you. They're richer than you, so they take advantage of it. Now they're biased. You're biased trying to prefer them, but they're biased against you. Go a little bit further down here, a little bit in verse seven, he says, do they, do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? What name is he talking about? None other than Jesus Christ himself. Their speech very clearly shows that these individuals and their actions clearly show that these individuals are not people that are godly. And James is getting them to think about, 
you like those people because of the way they look on the outside and because of, if you will, a worldly reputation. But in their reputation in the eyes of God is that they're oppressors, which God condemns, and they're blasphemers. That's how God sees them. Why would you want to go to them? Now, he's not saying all rich men are like this, okay? Let's clarify that. Not all rich men are like this. Because if you go over to where Paul is writing to Timothy, he, he makes it clear that he's talking about those that are rich, that they be ready to give. God uses those people for a reason. God uses those people for a reason. But not everybody's going to be that way. They're few and far between. But here he gets into verse 8 where he says, If ye fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. Now this is interesting. He called it a royal law. And some say, well, it's because, you know, the king said it. Well, where was it initially stated? Take a look here. Go over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, real quickly. I'm going to show you Matthew 22 because Matthew is a book about a king and his kingdom. Okay? Matthew portrays Jesus Christ as king. Specifically, king of the Jews, king of the world, king of kings. His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, that physical, literal reign of Jesus Christ here on earth. And he... um he, he, down in verse eight, uh, excuse me, verse 34 says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. And one of them, which was a lawyer, leave it to the lawyers, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, master, which is the great commandment in the law? Basically, I want you to narrow it down to one. Out of how many were over there in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and there's some in numbers and there's a bunch in Exodus. Which one, which one, which one's the best? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now he gives a parallel over there in Mark chapter 12. Now interesting, Mark and Matthew also go together. Those two books go together because one portrays him, Jesus Christ as a king, the other one portrays him as a servant. You go over to the Old Testament and throughout the Old Testament prophecies, not only is he referred to as royalty and as king, he's referred to as the Lord's servant, Jesus Christ is. That's why those two books are very important for the nation of Israel. So you have a, you, you basically have the parallel passage over there in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. But it originally came from, if you will, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Take a look at that. Let's go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> In verse 3 it says, Hear therefore, O Israel, to observe and do it, that it may be well with thee, that they may increase mightily, as the Lord thy God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. There it is. He makes it really clear. He tells the nation of Israel, as a fledgling nation, 
This is what I want you to do. Make sure you love the Lord God with everything you've got. In order to fulfill the royal law, the one that comes next, that first one has to be executed, meaning it must be done. Because you can't accomplish the second one unless the first one is done. And here he is, he makes it very well known, and there's, as we saw, there's several passages over in the book of Leviticus, and we'll take a look at some of those a little bit later, but when it comes to the neighbors, there's always this, if you will, understanding that those that are around you are your neighbors. Remember when the one, he, he talks about loving the neighbor over there in the book of Luke, when he's specifically talking about this, and some guy chimes in and says, well, who's my neighbor? Right? Well, who's his neighbor? And he starts in on what parable? The Good Samaritan. Let's see here. The good neighbor was not the Levite or the priest, both Jews. But a half-breed, subcultured human, as they would refer to him as, a Samaritan. Because if you remember, the Samaritans, the Samaritans were in Israel from Samaria in that region. But the city of Samaria, when it was conquered by the Assyrians, they took everybody out. And they filled the city of Samaria with Assyrians to, if you will, capture and populate and colonize the country. Well, the land was not very appreciative of the fact that these Assyrians were there. And what happened is all of a sudden the beasts started attacking the people. And that's when some of the, if you will, uh, priests of the Assyrians, for all the gods are sitting there going, maybe we should bring back some of those other Levites back in here so that we know how to deal with this land the way that their God told them to. And they brought in some Jews back in there, and then the Jews began mixing with the Assyrians, and hence you have the Samaritans. Which is why they despise them. Which is why the the the, the, the priests and the, uh, um, the high priests and the Pharisees uh, and the, if you will, the scribes called Jesus using it, if you will, as a derogatory comment, you're a Samaritan. Remember when he showed up over there at the Samaritan woman at the well and she was kind of confused about why he was talking to her? But as Jesus said, he must needs go through Samaria. And isn't it amazing that the Samaritans more readily received him than even his own hometown? They didn't want him to leave. He stayed there two days. That's an amazing thing to think about. But I say all that to say this. It's the Samaritan that was the good neighbor. Now, who was the guy that was the neighbor? The guy that was lying half dead on the side of the road. And James is asking this question. He's talking about this royal law, if you want, that is 
decreed, if you will, as in you treat other people the right way. You treat them, as he talks about right here, very specifically with love. He says, I mean, right there, the royal law says, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He says, ye do well. If you can just go that direction, if you can have that concept where regardless of who that person is that's your neighbor and you love them and you care about them and you have compassion on them, that's one of the greatest problems is people don't have compassion. Because as he starts getting down here and a little bit, a little bit more about this, he starts talking about some things of mercy. Mercy is necessary to show compassion. But he says in verse 9, but he, back over in James chapter 2, but if you have respect to persons, ye commit sin. Now that's very applicable for us today. And people will respect people, and I've seen it before. I've seen cliques, I've seen groups, I've seen bands, I've seen whatever, so on and so forth. God just right here calls it out and says, if you do that, you're in sin. Well, I like this guy better than that guy. Who cares? Obviously, God doesn't. Well, it's our flesh that cares. So we have to be very careful with that. Now, again, he is no way, shape, or form sitting there telling us to accept people's sin or condone sin or anything of that nature. He's talking about the way that we judge things. We have to be careful. We have to be careful. And he says, if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Now, this is the important part because they're going around boasting of themselves and, if you will, talking about how great they are and what they're doing. And the end result is, he just said, if you go out and you show favoritism in such a way, you're in sin. And then he says in verse 10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. He's saying, look, if you can keep the whole law and you can do all the commandments that God tells you to do, and specifically for the nation of Israel here, the things not, you know, that, that were moral laws that they were supposed to be abiding by, he's saying, look, if this is the case and you keep all of those, but yet you do this, you're guilty of it all. All that good work that you're sitting there trying to do, one little oopsie and you're guilty of it all. You're guilty of it all. Now that puts the idea and the concept of who's a sinner in the eyes of God very clear. Whether it's one person that told one white lie or it's a person that is a sociopath and a psychopath and a mass murderer. In the eyes of God, both need salvation. In the eyes of God, both need Jesus Christ as a Savior. In the eyes of God, both need the cleansing of the shed blood of Christ. 
in the eyes of God, he died for them both. In the eyes of God, he wants to extend mercy. Now, this becomes extremely important because he's setting all of this up to get to one main thing. And I want to get to this, and I know we're out of the, running out of time. But if you go down here a little bit further in verse 11, <coughs> we're going to read to verse uh, 13 here for a moment. But in verse 11, he says, For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty, meaning that God's standard is he's going to judge them according to his word. For ye have judgment, for excuse me, for ye shall have judgment without mercy that showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Now this is really important. And we'll get to the, the, the real, I mean, get to some of the doctrinal part of this next week. But I want you to see that this is where he's getting at. It's really hard to show mercy if you're biased. It's really hard to show mercy if you're partial towards one person. In order to execute it correctly, you have to have the mindset of God and not be a respecter of persons. And we'll talk about that more, Lord willing, next week. It didn't get as far as I wanted to. Uh, we'll take, uh, again, like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll pick that up and then get into this whole idea of uh, faith without works, which, again, is a very heavy doctrinal component of this book. It's uh, There's some things in here that a lot of people scratch their heads on, don't quite understand. Uh, some people try to explain it away in one way, and some people just ignore the whole concept altogether. We're going to take a look at the whole counsel of the Word of God. We're going to see what it says. If we're going to compare Scripture with Scripture, and we're going to find out exactly what God's talking about, because it comes very important. We got to remember that this book was written to a specific group of people for a specific time, and we've got to keep that in mind. If we don't, we're going to get really messed up. I'll give you one real quick example. The, the the book of Leviticus, do you think that was written to you to keep today? Nope, that was written to a group of people at a certain time for a certain reason. God always has a reason why he does these things. We'll explore that, Lord willing, next week. But let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for this time. Thank you again for all that you've given to us. Pray, Lord, that as we think on these things and we contemplate, especially in regards to partiality and judgment, how we do things, that, Lord, we would just have that mind that is yours, that is the mind of Christ, that is without partiality. And, Lord, I am so, so thankful that you did not have partiality towards me or towards someone else when it came to salvation. But, Lord, you, you died for all of us. You gave your life for all of us, that we might have a home in heaven with you because you love us and you care about us. And, and you don't want us to go to a devil's hell. And Lord, I am just so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that you don't judge the way that men judge, but you always judge with justness and with righteousness. Lord, I pray you just take us home safely tonight. And again, just bring us back safely on uh, um, 
on Sunday, Lord, as we uh, talk more about uh, you coming here to this earth and what you've given for us, what you gave up for us, and what you uh, do for us on a, on a day-to-day basis. I thank you again for all that you've done. And these things I ask and pray in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.